0: Hi, I'm Dr. Patty Ferris. I'm a board certified dermatologist and I'm your host for this episode of Skincare Confidential. Dr. Ted Lane and I started the podcast as an outreach of our medical meeting, the Science of Skincare Summit, so we could bring educational information about skincare products to a wider audience. The summit will be held in Austin, Texas this year, Uh, September 22nd through the 23rd. It's coming upon us. We're six weeks out. I'm not sure this episode will air before the summit, but I hope that it will. I'm really excited today to have one of my very esteemed colleagues, Dr. Henry Lim, with me. His uh, bio is pretty extensive here, but I'm going to hit the high points. He is the former Clarence S. Livingood Chair and Chairman of the Department of Dermatology at Henry Ford Health Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. And you held that position for 20 years, Henry, from 1997 to 2017. He received his medical degree from SUNY Downstate and completed his dermatology residency at NYU. He is a past president of the American Academy of Dermatology, the American Board of Dermatology, the American Dermatologic Association the American Society for Photobiology, and the International Union of Photobiology. That's exhausting, Henry. (laughs) Uh, He was elected in 2019 as a board member of the International League of Dermatological Societies. And now I think you've taken the presidency of that organization. So you will have yet another presidency under your belt. He was awarded an honorary membership, which is a very high honor from the American Academy of Dermatology in 2020. You have a long list of accolades here, and I'm just going to tell everybody that they're impressive, but they would take me a long time to read. He's published more than 570 articles, edited 11 textbooks. You're going to have to tell me how you get people to submit their chapters, because that's the challenge of editing a textbook, right? And he has also been voted by Expertscape as the world's top-rated sunscreen expert, so no surprise that today... I'm going to talk to Dr. Lim about sunscreen, about photo protection. And Henry, I'd love to start these episodes, especially with friends and people I know like you, but I don't really know the answer to this question. How did you get interested in photobiology?
1: Patty, that is a very, very good question. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this podcast. You know, we have known each other for a long time. You are one of my favorite persons for sure. It's definitely a pleasure to be on the screen with you here. So coming back to your question about photobiology, actually it's by by chance, really. You know, I have never planned my career path uh, very, very clearly from the very beginning. All I knew was that when I was in residency, I wanted to be in academic dermatology. Primarily, I liked the intellectual stimulation. So I was asked by my chair at the time, Rudy Bear, whom you probably know, he passed away, of course, but you know Dr. Bear. So he said, well, you know, go work in the laboratory uh, because at the time, he wanted to be an academician, you know, having spent time in laboratory is definitely one of the paths to get there. So it happened to be that the laboratory that I worked in, uh, which is led by Irma Julie, who became the chief of dermatology at UC San Diego, uh, had a project on the activation of the complement system. Again, keeping in mind this was in the 70s, so the complement system was quite a hot topic of research at the time. The activation of the complement system by porphyrin and light. So that's how I got started you know, in the laboratory, and then I expanded from there to uh, seeing patients with porphyria, and then at NYU, I, I, I established the photodermatology unit. I worked with Nick Soder in therapy unit, and then subsequent to that, I get more interested into not only photodermatology, photodermatosis, phototherapy, but expanded into photo protection. So that's how, you know, long story, but in a, in a short three minutes, that's how the synopsis of my interest in dermatology.
0: It's so interesting. And you're right, it's like you don't plan it, but it's those interesting twists and turns of your career that take you in, in certain directions. Um, let's start with sort of simple sunscreen, and maybe starting with UV protection, I want to go on to visible light and other wavelengths, because I know you're an expert in that as well. But really for our audience, some just sort of basics on sunscreen and UV protection and all the different filters that are out there and sort of what's new and what's happening in that arena?
1: Well, I think the uh, part, you know, speaking to the very sophisticated audience of dermatologists and other healthcare providers uh, on this podcast here, we know that the sunscreen is one of the components of photo protection. Sunscreen uh, is, was designed and is uh, still a very, very good photo protector for UVA and UVB spectrum. UVB is reflected by a sun protection factor because that testing primarily is looking at UV induced erythema which is primarily the effect of UVB, a little bit of the effect of UVA2, the shorter wavelength UVA, but primarily is the effect of UVB so the SPF reflects the protection primarily against erythema which is UVB. On the other hand, the FDA now requires the broad spectrum classification of sunscreen or labeling of sunscreen. So broad spectrum covers essentially the UVA spectrum uh, because we do know UVA acts synergistically with UVB and many of the photobiologic effect of UV, including photocarcinogenesis. But as importantly, uh, UVA also is the main spectrum that induces uh, photoaging changes, but also the Photo, uh, pigment, photo-induced pigmentation, uh, pigmentary alteration on the skin. So that is how the sunscreen was developed. I mentioned before that sunscreen is just one of the important components of photo protection. Clearly we all know photo protection includes, you know, behavioral modification when we go outdoor, stay in the shade, and then wearing a white cream hat, clothings, and sunglasses. And sunscreen should be applied on otherwise exposed sites.
0: So talk a little bit about some of the filters. I mean, we've, we've seen, I think, what we might call a backlash against the bad chemical sunscreens. You know, they've been vilified so much in the press. And now people are really moving more into the mineral sunscreens or the inorganic sunscreens. And I guess you and I've been around long enough to remember when they used to be worried about the nanoparticles that were in the mineral sunscreens. So so where do we kind of stand with all of those uh, right now, the ingredients?
1: The ingredients, and you know, as you all know, that the sunscreen in- ingredient in the U.S. is regulated by the FDA as an over-the-counter drugs. So it is classified into two broad categories that uh, you, Patty, had mentioned. That in one side is a so-called chemical, also known as organic filters. Uh, Those are the vast majority of the filters. And then the other one is the mineral or inorganic filter. You also sometimes just call also physical sunscreen. So those are the titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. The only two of them uh, that is used by the FDA. FDA classification uh, uh, is that um, both of them are completely uh, safe. So they have no question about the use and the... the the use and also the marketing of the mineral sunscreen. What FDA has been asking the industry to look at is uh, the mineral sunscreen. There's a group of mineral sunscreen that FDA felt there is just not enough data in terms of the safety not so much in the efficacy, but in terms of the safety. So they wanted to get more data on that, primarily because of the newer data showing that there is uh, uh, absorption of UV filters, organic filters, into the uh, bloodstream. That's the reason that the question has been asked. Having said that, FDA currently still stand behind the not only the efficacy, but the safety of all the UV filter accessories. And there's no, uh, uh, sunscreen that has been pulled from the market. But, uh, but, you know, clearly the FDA is still negotiating and discussing, uh, discussing with the, with the industry specifically what type of t- uh, UV te- uh, testing that needs to be done uh, in order to be able to satisfy. It. The FDA requirement on this particular aspect. That's where the controversy comes in. That is the reason that Patty, as you have mentioned, you know, many of the um, uh, public has moved on to using mineral sunscreen. So let me mention about mineral sunscreen. Mineral sunscreen nowadays, it is used as nanoparticles, meaning the particle size is less than 100 nanometers. The reason it is used as a nanoparticle is that because it would increase the cosmetic uh, uh, acceptance of the sunscreen because it makes it less chalky and less white because if the particle gets larger, then it reflects more of the visible light into our retina. So our retina would then... Uh, picked it up as a whitish discoloration on the skin. With nanoparticles, then there's, there's less of that reflection of the visible light. That's the reason it is used primarily as nanoparticle. Based on the current data, nanoparticles actually is very very safe. Uh, there is uh, practically no absorption at all into into the skin be- beyond the epidermis, which is where you want the sunscreen to be. So it is it is definitely very safe. There are some drawback, of course. You know, no matter how Find the nanoparticles are. There's still sometimes a little bit of whitish discoloration, even though I must say that the industry has done a great job. Now there are many uh, uh, mineral sunscreen. They're very, very elegant. That that is almost transparent.
0: I agree. They've come out with some really beautiful mineral sunscreens in the last year or two. Talk for a minute about the environmental dangers of chemical sunscreen. I've heard you eloquently discuss it on the podium and. And I think, in a way that, that many people can 't
1: yeah it is it is the the sort of the rationale on this is there two one the one that I mentioned before that there is uh, uh, evidence of ab- absorption of mineral of uh, organic sunscreen into the skin, uh, resulting in questions about the health effect, but in terms of the environmental effect is primarily based on in vitro studies laboratory studies what had been shown is that if you put corals in a laboratory setting and put uh, uv filters in there there is an increased probability of coral bleaching by measures that they use in a laboratory setting so that generated a lot of discussion as to, you know, we do know the breaching of coral reefs in, in uh, many parts of the world. The question is that what is the role of UV filters? And what has been studied now is that, uh, one, there have been a number of studies to look at the concentration of UV filters in actual seawater, specifically in areas that there are a lot of tourists, for example, one of the study was done in Hawaii what they found is that indeed you can detect uv filters in the seawater but the important part is that the concentration is significantly less a thousandfold less than what is used in the laboratory setting. so that so that, that is something that i think we need to keep in mind you know uh, as we know many of the quote-unquote in vitro studies for whatever it is uh, it is uh, it is a, a big jump to convert it into in vivo clinical setting. So there's something that we need to keep in mind about that. Number two is that we do know that, you know, sunscreen or UV filters from sunscreen is just one of the sources of UV filter in the water because wastewater removal is one, you know, it's, uh, a lot of the UV filters is used in the industry to prevent fading of the furniture, paint, and so on and so forth. So there are other sources in the, uh, the seawater of the UV filters. Thirdly, there are a lot of studies done to show that actually the major cause of coral reef bleaching is not so much of the UV filters, but the major cause is the ocean warming. Uh, the, the warming of the ocean water causes obviously the coral reef, which is very, very delicate uh, being, uh, to be bleached. So they are multifactorial. In fact, because of this controversy, the AD and many organizations have asked uh, the EPA to look into that and EPA subsequently had asked the National Academies, uh, the independent body, uh, to look at this particular issue. They spent about a good six months, but a good eight months, I think, to look at it uh, with in- individuals, dermatologists, but also a lot of other scientists, uh, to look at this particular issue all of them have been vetted very carefully for being non-conflicted in uh, uh, scientists and individuals and essentially what they found is that they more studies needs to be done because they, mm-hmm. they acknowledge the very complexity of the factors the different factors that is in there and there is no standardized method for example to measure many of the endpoints that is to be done so the, their bottom line is that essentially uh, based on what their review is uh, more studies needs to be done
0: isn't that always the way? It Unfortunately, is. Yes. another big scare we had—I think it was last summer or the summer before—was the benzene that was found in some sunscreen. So yes. maybe you could speak to that. We're going to yes. get all the bad things out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, indeed, that that was a concern, of course, because benzene is known as a carcinogen. Uh, that was a p- apparently a supply chain issue, and uh, because of that, actually there was some sunscreen product that was pulled from the market because of this concern about contamination benzene. but to my knowledge and you know, everything is found resolved. you know the, the industry had act very aggressive and correctly so to make sure that that doesn't happen and uh, that had pretty much been, uh, been resolved on, on that part.
0: Interesting. So let's move on a little bit to visible light, because I know you've done a lot of work in this area, and it's getting a lot of attention among dermatologists. You know, we didn't talk about visible light not all that long ago, and now we're talking about visible light and even beyond with infrared. So tell us a little bit about visible light. We all know we get visible light from sun exposure, but also from devices. So how does that all influence our skin and skin biology?
1: You're, you're absolutely correct, Patty. That the visible light has been around for a long time, and for the long, actually, we all need visible light for uh, to to live, right? Uh, <laughs> and what what uh, has been understood for the longest time is that visible light is biologically inert. Uh, however, in the past ten, twelve years or so, you know, our group as well as others had shown that indeed visible light has biological effect. You know, our group was one of the first that showed that uh, using visible light. Uh, exposing visible light on the skin of darker skin individual would result in fairly significant and very intense pigmentation uh, that is longer lasting as compared to the pigmentation induced by UVA because we know UVA classically mm-hmm. is considered to be the Spectrum that would induce pigmentary alterations. And that is the case. But what we've shown is that visible light is even more intense in terms of the pigmentation and also would last longer. So the clinical implications, there are several folds though. One is that clearly, and this only occurs in darker skin individuals, when the study was done using skin type 2 individuals, skin type 2 subject, nothing happened. That is no pigmentary alteration. Right. There. Uh, so the implications on that is that obviously you know we know that a lot of the uh, pigmentary alterations occurs in darker skin individual clinically we know melasma for example tends to occur in darker skin individual post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, likewise. So that is a clinical implication that we all know clinically. We know with a lot of patients, our patients with melasma, As I well, doctor, and I put on my sunscreen all the time, but my uh, melasma continued to get darker in the summertime. And it is possibly the, the role of uh, the additional role of visible light in addition to UV that is causing that uh, darkening of the melasma. The other implication of that is that in terms of photo protection, because we mentioned before that currently sunscreen, specifically the UV filters that is approved by the FDA in the sunscreen is meant to protect against UV, UVB or UVA. Mm-hmm. But it's not right. meant to protect against visible light because in right. order to protect against visible light, at least on a topical level, it has to be visible. Because visible light is visible, right? So you, you, unless you have something that is visible that would reflect the visible light, right. back to our retina, you, you are not going to be able to protect well against, against visible light. So there comes the challenge. And unfortunately, right. there are now uh, uh, new developments that helps to protect against visible light. And uh, uh, but so the, 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 it is an active area of, uh, of research and investigation.
0: It's a challenge. It is. For sure. Is. Um Talk a little bit about antioxidants. I know you recently published some things on um, papers on using antioxidants with sunscreens or sunscreens that contain antioxidants and how that plays into visible light protection in particular.
1: Yeah. So, the, the protection against visible light, you know, either topical, and I'll come back to the topical aspect of the visible light protection. There are some new developments on that. But the other way is that true antioxidants, because we do know, just like UV, Visible light can induce production of reactive oxygen species. Mm-hmm. Clearly, when you know we we studied by based on UVA, UVB, and visible light, but in real life, when you go outside, there's always uh, a sort of crossover between UV and visible light. So reactive oxygen species likewise is generated definitely by UVA but also by visible light. So the the rationale of using topical uh, antioxidants is that by having antioxidants, it would help to downregulate the effect of visible light. Indeed, you know, the studies that you have mentioned that we have done uh, showed that indeed if the, product, the products contain biologically active antioxidants, it can downregulate. It would not completely suppress, but it would help to downregulate visible light-induced pigmentary alteration in darker skin individuals. So there is one aspect that we could use to help to protect the pigmentary alteration induced by visible light. I must say also that industry has developed quite well in terms of biologically active antioxidants because you probably remember probably about 10 years ago there been a study to show that in a lot of the topical antioxidants is mm-hmm. not biologically active but nowadays yep. I think uh, the technology has advanced many most of the antioxidants on the in sunscreen is biologically active so that's one aspect. The other aspect in terms of protection of visible light is to use tinted sunscreen. So tinted sunscreen, essentially a sunscreen that contains iron oxides, which comes in three different colors. And usually the manufacturer would mix and match that. Sometimes they put the uh, non-pigmentary, non-natonized, so pigmentary uh, titanium dioxide also to, again, mix and match the color. And because they're colored, because of that, it would help to protect against visible light. Clearly, the limiting factor is that, as we all know, you know, you have to tell the patient, get several samples to see which one would match with your natural skin tone so that it would be acceptable uh, for the patient to use. The other limiting factor with tinted sunscreen, obviously, it, it does, uh, just like tinted makeup, it does, colored, uh, it does sort of uh, uh, color your clothing, so you have to be careful right. about that. In Europe, there are two... New uh, filters that protect against the visible light light range. One is not so much an invisible light, but a very long wave UVA, which we know that it would induce uh, pigmentary alteration. So, that is the MaxRail 400. uh, uh, That's a L'Oreal product. It covers essentially the very long spectrum of UVA1, so from 360 to 380, even to 390 range. Mm. So, it is quite uh, good in helping to suppress the uh, pigmentary alteration on the skin. Another one, which is a for product, uh, uh, Triopso. And both of them are marketed in Europe and available in Europe. The Triopso, it covers, is a broad spectrum, so it covers UVB, UVA, but also this one covered visible light spectrum. But because of that, that particular one is pigmented, so you know, they have to match it with the, the, the different type of pigments to make sure that it is acceptable to patients. So those are the development that have uh, occurred, at least uh, for protection against visible light. Two of the products are now available in Europe. A third one is being developed and probably uh, uh, is going to be available in Europe uh, fairly soon.
0: This is why dermatologists are bringing sunscreen back every time they go to Europe, because they have such <laughs> yes. great filters there that we don't have.
1: Correct, yeah.
0: Unfortunately, yeah. I wish we could get some of these yeah. into the States. This would make a big difference. Talk for just a minute about uh, infrared because that's our sort of longer wavelength of light beyond visible. Yeah. And I think, again, it's being implicated in photo aging
1: for sure. Yes, yes. You know, we just... uh uh, published a, a paper a review paper actually on this particular aspect uh, in photodramatology for the for medicine journal but essentially you're absolutely right you know infrared you know we all i think recognize infrared being the one the source of when when you go outside to get the heat from sunlight that is the effect of infrared right but the one that is that is most biologically relevant is the infrared a which is happened to be the shortest wavelength of infrared and uh, it it is indeed uh, or has been shown to induce photo aging changes. Initially, was done way back uh, by uh, in 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 animal models, but definitely, I think it's now known also in human. It can uh, induce photoaging changes. But infrared is an interesting spectrum because, depending on the dose, depending on the amount that is exposed that uh, the, the skin is exposed to, they are beneficial effect. Even though the beneficial aspect effect of uh, infrared, there have been a lot of studies on that. The data is not yet quite strong but the indication the signals there we all know that infrared uh, has been used for the treatment of uh, various type of hair loss for example yes. the various caps right uh, there are studies on that uh, most of the studies are sponsored by in- industry but nonetheless you know there are some data on that It is used also for wound healing. Uh, A lot of uh, leg ulcers, for example, in infrared, they have that data to show that it can be helpful for wound healing. Uh, Sometimes it is used even for sclerodermoid skin changes. Uh, Again, it seems to be depending on what dose you use. Clearly, more studies need to be done, but I think there are quite a bit of signal to show that this is quite potentially could be very helpful. I think this is another so It's a double-edged area. sword. Yes. <laughs> a little bit of a
0: double-edged sword at it is, this point. It is, yes. Maybe just in closing, speak for just a minute about some of the other exposomal factors, maybe pollution and some of the other things that we also now know are contributors to uh, sun damage, I mean, not sun damage, but skin damage and environmental damage.
1: Absolutely. That, that is an, another new area, uh, relatively new area within photobiology, within photoprotection. Pollutants is, is, is a, a significant factor. Uh, you know, there are some suggestions that, you know, when you are living in a highly polluted environment, the photo mm-hmm. aging changes would be more accelerated. Again, you know, yeah. there are a lot of data, but still not uh, more studies again needs to be done but i think something that we should continue to watch out for the other one new area in this is uh, microbiome the skin microbiome yes. again there is a lot of studies now there is a trickier one to study because uh, it is uh, a lot of study has been done with gut microbiome but now the skin microbiome is being studied the challenge with microbiome is that because each one of us has different microbiome, even on different parts of the body, the, the population of microbiome is very, very different. So, you know, the, we, need, we need to continue to be able to standardize and come with a, with a conclusion that microbiome is helpful or hurtful. There are some suggestions that some microbiome is photoprotective. It serves as a photoprotective mechanism. But at this moment, I think it's still relatively early, but there are a lot of new data coming out on that.
0: So interesting. We've come a long way, haven't we?
1: Yes, we have. So many have.
0: developments. I'm going to wrap it up here, and I'm so appreciative of your time and your expertise and for you joining us today on the podcast. Thank you for everything, Henry, and all your contributions to dermatology and to the world of photobiology. I'll keep reading your articles and attending your lectures and hopefully learning more.
1: Thank you very much, Betty, for having me. Thank you for the kind words, and it's a pleasure to, to continue to work with you.